The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 8th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The salaries of special government advisors is capped at a little over €100,000. In fact, it's at €101,114 a year. That's up from a previous maximum of €92,000 a year, a significant salary by anybody's standards. But that maximum increase as part of the public service pay deal, which incrementally restored pay for public servants. The Irish Independent reported yesterday that most of the government advisors uh, these days are paid somewhere between 79,000 and 98,000 euro. That's despite this cap of 101,114 euro. They're paid a bit less than that, but still a lot of money. However, Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the Irish Independent, was with us on the programme yesterday, and he told us that the Social Protection Minister Regina Doherty was able to land a pay deal for her spin doctor that breaches that cap on salary for special advisors. Well, Alex Connolly was the uh, head of communications for Falls Ireland for uh, about a decade before he, and prior to that, he was head of the national press office in the HSC. And in October of last year, he was appointed as a uh, special advisor to Regina Doherty. As you say, Regina Doherty effectively appointed him. Um, all cabinet ministers are entitled to two advisors, one to handle policy and one to handle press and media. Uh, and typically these advisors would earn anything between €79,000 a year and around €98,000 a year in some instances. Uh, but in Alex Connolly's case, he earns uh, €107,000 a year uh, of a salary uh, as a result of being seconded from his full to Ireland job, a job he was on it, where he was on a salary of €107,000. Regina Doherty was, uh, or rather her department, was able to secure a special dispensation, I suppose, or special approval sanction for the restriction on uh, special advisor salaries to be lifted in Alex Connolly's case so that he could earn 6000 more than the cap and uh, €20,000 more, or roughly €20,000 more than mm. the average salary paid to a uh, government special advisor. Now, we hope to speak uh, to Regina Doherty on Monday. Uh, the Minister is hoping to make uh, some time for us and uh, perhaps she'll make some time for us uh, to explain uh, this uh, salary that is paid uh, to her special advisor or as the Irish Independent described Alex Connolly her spin doctor. Peter Tobin is a TD in Mead West and leader and founder of the AIM2 party and he's on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us today. Uh, what do you make of this? Well it, it's incredible because if you look at the, 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 the number of staff first, firstly that ministers have um, they have about eight staff in their private offices um, and they have about four staff in their constituency offices and each minister may appoint two civilian drivers. So that's 14 staff straight away there. And, you know, when we look at the, the Taoiseach's own office, the Taoiseach has about 17 advisors in his, in his office. And indeed, actually, SPIN has made a, a, played an enormous role in the approach of this government has to governing. Um, and at a time where we have a lame duck doll, more emphasis seems to be played uh, with regards to SPIN and publicity than actually policy and decisions. Um, and it, it's incredible uh, that you would have 
a, an, an individual who is not bringing any real value to the citizens in any way. All that that individual's role is is to communicate and to protect the, the minister. Uh, and yet these salary caps are being broken. And we see government overspend right across uh, the whole of government, and we see it with regards to the, the overspend in the National Children's Hospital and the mm. $3 billion overspend in the National Broadband Plan. Well, if each individual minister is willing to overspend in the employment of their own staff, well, that's like sets the precedent straight away that obviously minding the citizens' money isn't the first priority uh, of the government. Uh, and, you know, in, in, a, in, in this money adds up as well. Um, in a period of about two years, 6.7 million euros was spent on um, special advisors and government spin doctors. And um, that's massive money. There's, there's an opportunity cost there. But every euro that you spend uh, on a, a spin doctor, especially every euro overspent, is money that comes out of uh, other roles that could potentially be delivered uh, by the state. So, for example, a staff nerf, nurse in this country would start off at about €29,000. Um, so you can see how many staff nurses you would achieve with regards to €6.7 million mm. Euros the government spent on these special advisors. Well, this, salary in, itself, this salary in itself would uh, pay uh, the dole for 10 single people over the course of a, a year. Uh, but uh, is it spin or is it communication? I mean, uh, it's very important that the government uh, communicates uh, with the people, isn't it? Uh, and uh, that's the role of this advisor in terms of communicating through the media with people. It is, but the, like departments already have press offices. Uh, so, in other words, the, the minister will have a department which will have a staffed um, press office which, whose job it will be to communicate the the proposals and the plans and, and, and the projects that the minister is involved. So, you know, in this particular role is assigned to the minister alone, who's, and obviously that individual's job is then to, to protect and communicate on behalf of the minister. And, like, what's, like... <laughs> so, when, so, so, when, so when you hear a spokesperson for the minister said, in Regina Doherty's case, it would be Alex Connolly, uh, who's on the salary of €101,114. Euro. Or a bigger pardon, 107,109 euro. The cap is 101. Exactly. Uh, he's 6,000 more than that, yeah. Yeah, so, but here's the point, right? The point is the minister herself, by putting herself into that role, should have the necessary skills available to communicate to her constituents. And the minister herself should be on top of the job necessary uh, to be able to communicate uh, to the constituents. Now, I'm not saying that, that there mm. doesn't need to be some level of a communications role within the minister's office. All I'm saying is that that wage is obscene, even by the government standards themselves, because the government obviously set a cap, given that you know, anything north of that cap is wrong. And they're breaching those caps. Uh, and they're not just breaching it on one occasion, they've breached it on a large number of, ca- of occasions. And this fits in with the culture that we mm. see within Fine Gael and this particular government, because from the very start, there was a big controversy with the 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 Taoiseach's special communications department, the idea that millions needed to be spent on uh, creating a message, crafting a message and delivering a message uh, to the public. Uh, when in actual fact, the, the efforts and the actions of those ministers should really be speaking for themselves and they should have the skills to deliver the message themselves too. Right, well, uh, when I said it would pay the dole of 10 people over the course of a, a year, I was basing it on about 100,000. Uh, at 107,000, it's probably more like 11 
people over the course of, of a year who would uh, get unemployment benefit for the salary that one person is receiving for advising the minister or for spinning news through the media, depending on how you interpret his role. Uh, but this is not a policy advisor, and this is the difference. A, a policy advisor, you can you can make an argument for a policy advisor because in the end of the day, policy is about creating ideas and solutions and bread and butter approaches to actually fixing issues that the government uh, is working on. So there's no doubt that you know. Uh, an investment in policy that actually brings a net benefit to the to people at home is mm. a positive thing. But this isn't about that. This the, 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 there is actually I, I can't see where the net benefit is for the citizens uh, in Meath with regards to this particular individual. This individual's benefit is purely to the minister, and the minister has already eight staff in her office. She's already got four constituency staff. She's most likely to have two civilian drivers currently, and she has a a press office within her department whose job it is to make sure that the projects she's involved in within her department are communicated properly uh, to the general public. And what she's doing is, by spending this money, she's spending the equivalent to three and a half staff nurses on an individual who is simply creating a message uh, for the uh, protection of the minister herself. But if he was earning this amount of money at Falcher Ireland, does he not deserve to earn as much working for the government? First of all, um, Falcher Ireland has a particular project. That particular project is to make sure that um, we have more tourists coming in uh, to the country. So if you invest in Falcher Ireland, typically you will see uh, the benefit of that three or four or five-fold uh, with regards to extra tourists. You know, my instinct in, in this as well is we do have very high pay rates for upper income earners in this country. And, you know, if, if you look at other countries in, in Europe, you would often have uh, situations where upper income earners earn about three and a half to four times those in the bottom of their companies or departments. But in Ireland, it's typically seven or eight times the multiple of the lower income earner. So there's mm. a bigger um, split between uh, incomes in this country than there is uh, in other countries. So, for example, Britain, lecturers in Britain wouldn't make the money that lecturers in Ireland make. Um, and people, you know, even the, the, the Taoiseach in this country is far better enumerated than uh, the Prime Minister of England. And, you know, TD salaries in this country are higher than uh, MP salaries are in Britain. Well, they're not as high as uh, Regina Doherty's spin doctor. Exactly. And um, so we, we I have mean, to people, to... pe- people give out about how much TDs earn, and TDs, of course, have been elected to do the job and to run the country. Uh, this man, Mr. Connolly, is communicating uh, how his minister is carrying out her role uh, as a, a government minister. Does it make sense to you, though, that he has been seconded from Fulcher Ireland and uh, he could be in this position for three, four, five, maybe even 10 years, maybe even 15 years? Uh, and at the end of that, he can return to his job in Fulcher Ireland. Well, I have to say, I, I am actually very uncomfortable with the relationships of special advisors and uh, uh, ministers and the Taoiseach. And there's a close relationship with regard to special advisors and the media, believe it or not. And there's quite a few journalists uh, who have actually left uh, newspapers or radio stations, not your own, don't get me wrong, I'm not pointing No, no, and Hugh O'Connell was talking about Chris Donoghue yesterday, yeah, Chris Donahue who, who was, was the advisor was to the, Simon Coveney, the, the, the political Tonister. editor of INM, and... Uh, and he earns 10,000 less than um, but Alex the, the, Connolly, who works for Regina danger Donahue. here, and, that, and because, unfortunately, the Irish media is a very small medium, it's uh, not... It doesn't have the investment that it needs to be able to grow and to be able to hold mm. the system to account. And there's a danger often, I think, when you have journalists 
who are trying to pay their mortgage mm. and when there isn't very many options for them to uh, improve We've seen it happen with many. Sarah Sarah Barden left the Irish Times uh, to go work as a a press advisor. Uh, Niall O'Connor left the Irish Independent uh, to go and work as a a government advisor. G. McKenna did, uh, as indeed John John Downing did. There's a a steady Mm -hmm. stream of journalists going into the position of either press officers or special advisors for ministers. And it's a dangerous thing because it, it makes the government and the media too close together. Where, you know, where a young journalist is looking, well, how am I going to pay my mortgage in five or six years when one of those options is likely to be working for the government? Are they likely then to be critical of that minister or critical of that government in the future if, if their job depends on it in the future? And, and so too, actually, with the state agencies, such as Falls to Ireland as well, that kind of uh, tightness between an individual political minister and what is a, a civil service role whose rules should not be involved in uh, the political direction uh, or political parties. When people are, are always have an eye out to those types of jobs, I think it's a dangerous thing with both within the civil service and within the media. We need mm. a separation of media and state in this country okay. to make which, sure it functions which is not Which is not a, a, in question in this particular yeah, story. What, what, what is in question in this particular story is why the cap which is a very generous salary of over €100,000, has been breached, uh, and uh, that Mr Connolly is receiving €6,000 on top of what is supposed to be the maximum amount paid to a government advisor. We'll be asking Regina Doherty uh, on Monday, hopefully we'll be asking her on Monday, uh, why that is uh, the case. Uh, Undoubtedly, she'll tell us it's because he's worth it. He's a professional. He he, uh, is independent in what he does uh, in terms of... uh, uh, allegiances uh, to other uh, people or organisations uh, and that what he does is communicate a very important pas- message on behalf of uh, the Minister and the government to the people uh, and that in this day and age it's a necessity and that she wants <clears throat> the best uh, and if you want the best you have to pay them, you can't expect them to take a pay cut. So what's, what's your response to that? My response is I, I want a country where people are prosperous. I want a country for, for people who work hard uh, who, who invest, who take risks, spend time in education, who do well for themselves and, and get decent wages and are able to provide properly for their families. But unfortunately in this country, in Ireland, we have a very small inner circle of people. We have a group of people uh, who seem to be very close with each other. They've gone to the same schools with each other. They are often you know, uh, attend the same dinner parties with each other. There, there's a cross-pollination currently from, de- from departments into ministerial offices into media organizations. We need to start to make sure that there are plenty of people in this country who have good skill. There are plenty of people who who are able to act as special advisors. There are plenty of people who, if given half the chance, would be able to do, to do that job within the salary cap. But we have a government who has a, has a laissez-faire, relaxed attitude to spending caps, and that's visible right through, obviously, the, the departments, but also right through crisis like the, the National uh, Children's Hospital and the uh, National Broadband Plan. We need to develop a culture where we look after the money of the citizens, it's where we spend it very strictly and carefully, and where we don't just throw it out at ministers so that they can spin better uh, in local papers and national papers. Okay, at a cost of €107,109 a year. we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Padre Tobin is a TD in Mead West and uh, founder and leader of the AIN2 Party. 
In recent years in particular, we've been talking about uh, gift vouchers and how they may expire before you actually go to spend them or before whoever you buy them for may go to spend them. That seems uh, about to change. Let's talk uh, to Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with uh, the Consumers Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Dermot, and thanks uh, for joining us. Hopefully uh, this Christmas, if people are are buying vouchers, uh, they uh, will be valid for at least five years. Yeah, and good morning, Michael. Yes, um, you're right. This has been a, an issue going, ongoing for years. Um, and we ourselves started to highlight it back again in 2017 because it was, it's been a bad situation whereby you would pay for a voucher and at maximum it would have had a 12-month um, life. Mm-hmm. And then the entire value just vanished into to, to nowhere land. So, yes, it's it's been... We've, we've, we've got good work on it because um, there was a, a consultation period. We submitted to that, obviously, because we, we ramped this back up in 2017 with a Credit Where's Due campaign. Now we find that in the last week, um, the report, or it, it, it's a bill, um, it and the final stage has gone through um, Doyle Aaron this week, and it's now scheduled to go through the Shannon. Um, on Tuesday next before it goes to the President for signature. So yes, as you say, we should have a situation whereby this what this bill provides, and I have a copy of it, I'm glad to say, mm-hmm. um, is that um, in future, uh, for, from the date that it's passed, um, every voucher issued um, will have a, a, a lifespan of a minimum of five years. Mm. So it could be more than that, uh, but in five years from now, uh, it has to be honoured. Yeah, absolutely. That's it, and, and, and provided for. I suppose, uh, well, t- t- what, what, the, um, what is very, very good and what's kind of key to this um, whole... The situation has moved forward quite significantly, significantly as time has moved on in the sense that vouchers have... Are, are, are sitting side by side with cards, gift cards. So what is really interesting in the bill um, is that it describes a gift voucher as any voucher or coupon or other document or instrument, including an electronic form, which we are reading to deem to be a, a gift card mm. um, that's intended to be used as a substitute for, for money um, in, in payment. So it it has brought in the, the, that other area of cards, which is very, very key. Now, that will raise some questions um, later, a little bit down the line, which obviously the bill doesn't go into, but we have to take those as they come, Michael. Right, and a lot of people buy these vouchers. Uh, I think uh, a survey found that 41% of consumers had bought uh, a voucher in the course of uh, the last 12 months. That's exactly it. And they're very, very popular. They're enormously popular. And it's understandable. It mm. makes sense because... Well, when you don't know what to buy somebody, I suppose, yeah, it's very them, easy to give them the value. It gives them the value something, of yeah, something yeah. and mm-hmm. they can choose themselves. Mm. And, and it's, it's excellent. Um, the, 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 this, the difficulty has been that if it was a straightforward voucher, it came with a very fixed term, which was, as, as we say, very frustrating. And on the other side of it, there would be a card whereby, and this is where the devil is going to be yeah. in the detail of this, the card, yes, if it's to have a life of whatever, mm. five years at minimum, that's fine. But the difference between a card and a voucher is that if you get a voucher, and that this will continue in the next five years, mm. there is nothing to state that the business that sold you the voucher may not be there in five years' time. Mm. Whereas 
the card situation as it currently is presented, Michael, is that an amount is deducted after a year or a year and a half or whatever, it depends on the card, Mm. that, if you like, protects the value of it. But whilst it protects the value of it and there's a guarantee that it will retain its value, it is diminished on a monthly basis with a charge. So that's not addressed understandably in the bill. So we're going to have to see what the card companies do with that. Okay, now if somebody gives me uh, €100 for a a restaurant and uh, I go and have a meal, I spend €75. As things stand, uh, there are some restaurants who will say thanks very much uh, and good luck to you. Uh, But that won't be the case under this new legislation. No, it's not. And what is really impressive about it is that it stipulates that you must either be given a new voucher... Mm. Um, for the value of the change, which would be €25, or given the the, the balance in cash. Mm. Um, So there's an either-or situation there, which, again, I'm delighted to say, is for the benefit of the customer, the consumer. Um, It's it's, it's very, very good, and it also offers the opportunity for the business to to keep a degree of contact with the consumer, whereby they say, look, you have a voucher now for €25. We look forward to seeing you again. Or or €2. Or or €2. Anything greater than €1, isn't it? That's exactly. One is the is the, the bottom line, one euro, which, as I say, it's realistic, it's pragmatic. There's nobody losing money here anymore and nobody gaining money um, unfairly, which has been the case for mm. so long. Because the entire idea behind a voucher was, it was not to necessarily to the, where, where you were given one, where you returned something. It's not necessarily to the benefit of, yeah. of the consumer. It was to the benefit of the business. I don't know if uh, you know how to spell my name, uh, but I have uh, an unusual spelling of my my name. It's R-E-A-D-E. I think most people would say R-E-I-D. And if I was to receive a a voucher for Michael Reid, R-E-I-D, that's not me. Uh, And uh, this is an important part of this uh, new legislation, isn't it? Yeah, very, very much so, because this was a problem um, that uh, transpired even at issue or whatever, or again, somebody purchasing on on your behalf and mistakenly misrepresenting your name. So now that is provided for, which is, look, errors can happen, and the individual holding it can prove that that this is who they are, that there's a different spelling in their name, then it has to be honoured, and it must be. And it's, it's, as I say, a lot of good thought went into this. I must say, the consultation process obviously brought out every possible connotation of what has gone wrong in years years past and it's it's being addressed as best as possible um, and it, which is why it's a bill at the moment and will become an act um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks Alright, very good. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland. Now let's uh, go uh, to Leinster House and topical issues in the Dáil yesterday which was chaired by Declan Brannock of Fianna Fáil and saw Fine Gael's Fergus O'Dowd raise a very important local issue with the Minister for Justice. Discuss the ongoing drug-related criminality in the Drogheda East Mead area. Uh, I think it's a very important debate at a very difficult time for people in my community, uh, particularly in East Mead and in Drogheda. There is a gang war going on for some months now, indeed for some years in Drogheda, and despite the very welcome efforts and supports which the Gardaí and the Minister have put in place, we've had the second gangland killing uh, this very week. 
and they shocked and appalled everybody in our area. And I'm sure everybody is uh, being very shocked at the killing of Richie Carberry, but Fergus O'Dowd spoke about the complication that is involved in policing Eastmeath. There's the equivalent of about 10,000 new people living between the area, which was a, almost a complete rural area, of Julianstown and Drogheda. But the Garda station there itself is physically totally inadequate. There are 18 Gardaí placed there, two of whom are sergeants. They have no real operational room. It is not open sufficiently the way the Gardaí would like to operate it or the public. We need a new Garda station there and I've been in communication with the Garda Commissioner some weeks ago about this matter and clearly I don't expect the Minister to give me that answer today. But there is a difficulty because if you live in East Mead, your nearest official control for the Gardaí is actually the town of Ashburn, which is many, many miles away, whereas the Garda station in Drogheda is very near you and very close. I raised with uh, the Chief Superintendent, uh, Christy Mangan, this issue, uh, in fact on Monday, the day before this assassination took place, and he told me there are protocols in place and there is cover provided by Drogheda Garda station, which is in the Loud Division, to East Mead, as and when this seriousness arises. But the people in the, in the community in East Mead are not clear on this issue. The Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, said he recognises how seriously people look on this locally and how they want it to be tackled. I'm most aware of the concerns of the people in the area, referred to by Deputy O'Dowd, and indeed your own constituents, Chair, in County Loud. Uh, I, can, I can assure the people of Drogheda and the people of East Mead that neither the government nor Angarda Siakana is going to permit a small number of individuals to continue to put local communities in fear for their safety. The, the teacher and I visited Drogheda uh, in the summer. We were both very impressed by the robust response which has been put in place by the Garda authorities in the region under Operation Stratus. Operation Stratus consists of high visibility patrols and checkpoints, days of action, covert policing initiatives, targeting specific parties engaged in feud-related criminality. This operation is supported by divisional and district uniformed and plainclothes personnel, in particular the Roads Policing Unit, community engagement and public safety personnel, detective drugs and crime units, Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, Emergency Response Unit. Indeed, Gardaí have made most important progress in tackling the threat of organised crime. Indeed, that's a, a lot of resource uh, that has been given over to uh, this particular prob- pro- problem, but uh, another problem is uh, that the funding ran out on Monday. Deputy Bannock, you're as aware of I am what uh, Superintendent Christie, Chief Superintendent, said on, on Monday, that he is applying this very week for the continuation. Now, he's not looking... He's not looking for additional resources in his area, but he wants the assurance that he absolutely demands, and we demand for him as well, that, that it will continue. Thank you. Minister. I want to acknowledge, Chairman, what, <clears throat> what Deputy O'Dowd has said in respect of the administrative issue, uh, and I trust that as an operational issue, uh, will be dealt with positively. Uh, by the Garda Siakana. So funding is an administrative operational issue, but the Minister had this warning for the gangs. I fully support the Garda Commissioner and the wider management team and on Garda Siakana in their tireless efforts to keep our communities safe in Drogheda, in Dundalk, 
and elsewhere, but in particular in Drogheda and East Mead, as raised by Deputy O'Dowd. And I can assure, I can assure the people of Drogheda and East Mead, as referred to by Deputy O'Dowd, of the continuing support of the government until those small number of people responsible for most unacceptable crimes are brought to book and are taken out of business. Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Justice, responding to Fine Gael TD in Louth, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Immigrant Council of Ireland hosted a conference uh, this week on integration and inclusion, and we're joined by Brian Cloran, who's uh, Chief Executive Officer with uh, the Immigrant Council. Good morning to you, Brian, and thanks for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You six main themes employment, housing, direct provision, sport, migrant leadership, and tackling racism. The Taoiseach attended your conference, uh, but I think most of your themes were overlooked because of Leo Vratker's uh, attendance and a lot of the focus was on illegal immigration. Uh, good morning, Michael. Yes, uh, I suppose the, the times that we are in um, make it very prescient that um, we are looking at the issue for a start, but also, I suppose, with everything that's going on in the political field around immigration and asylum in particular, um, that did draw a lot of the media attention, as you said. So so well, we were we were keen, obviously, to, to focus on the deep issues around integration, because um, that's the kind of work that we do. But obviously, we, we you know, we, we were very grateful that the teacher came along and spoke at the event and said resoundingly positive things about um, Ireland and immigration and the need for immigration and the need for collective action for us all to work together on the issue of integration. He, he, he did, of course, but he, he also gave a lot of people the very clear impression that anybody who is in this country and was born in either Albania or Georgia is nothing less than a sponger. His comments the weekend, last weekend, the weekend before the conference, we were very clear were unhelpful. You know, we said it the Monday after, essentially. The way things are at the moment in terms of public opinion around mm. asylum seekers and refugees, comments like that were very poorly timed, I think, in terms of public opinion. The asylum and integration, the asylum and migration system are, are very complicated. And we were very clear, I suppose, that conflating illegal immigration or irregular immigration mm. with those seeking protection, it's very dangerous because what it does is it feeds into some of the public attitudes that are negative around asylum seekers and refugees. We would obviously say anybody coming from any country who makes a claim for protection in the state is entitled to have that claim heard. And I suppose names... Uh, 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 and, that, uh, and I think that was very evident uh, in the High Court this week and we'll talk about that in a, a moment. Uh, but yeah. when the Taoiseach spoke about people coming into this country illegally legally uh, as economic migrants and specifically named people from Albania and Georgia. Uh, He gave a lot of people the impression that anybody living in this country who was born in Albania or Georgia is nothing less than a sponger. That could be defined as hate speech, couldn't it? I I, I think... It's it's very dangerous territory to be getting in in term into in terms of picking out or singling out particular nationalities. You know, from their perspective in the state, they have to say, okay, our immigration system needs to be clear and needs to be transparent. Our asylum system needs to be clear and it needs to be transparent. When you start talking about particular nationalities in mm. particular countries, that gets into very dangerous territory. Well, let's talk about anybody from that country then can be defined as being 
not a legitimate uh, person claiming protection are actually, even if they're here on completely different grounds, that there's something dubious about them. And that's really dangerous. And we would, you know, we were very clear in our response to the Taoiseach around that. Mm. Uh, and, and we were very clear earlier this week that that kind of commentary is incredibly unhelpful. Well, I think Justice Richard Humphreys uh, was pretty clear in his message to the Taoiseach and to the government and all of us, uh, and indeed uh, department officials uh, who he uh, likened uh, to the pitiless protagonist Napoleon in George Orwell's Animal Farm uh, and how he had four pigs seized, called upon them to confess their crimes after they did that uh, and uh, uh, other confessing animals were slain on the spot. Uh, uh, And he made this comment in relation to how a woman from Georgia, ironically enough, was being treated by the department after she sought protection in this country. Uh, She had been here uh, illegally, uh, as uh, the Taoiseach would have put it, uh, uh, and uh, without uh, the just cause, as the Taoiseach would have given us uh, the impression. But the judge saw it in a, a very, very different light. Yeah, there were incredibly strong comments from the judge in that regard. Um, I, I think it's, a, it's, again, a very timely case in terms of what the Taoiseach's comments were last weekend. And I think if we look at the case, we weren't involved in it, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, it wasn't one of our cases. But um, in particular relation to that case, the woman had entered the, the country and for many years was terrified to approach the authorities because she didn't know what was going to happen and was in fear of being returned. So in 2015, she did come forward. They'd say, listen, I'm here. I need you to look at my situation. Situation and I want to apply for protection in the state and in doing so then went through the system of doing that um, I think what judge, the judge's comments I think in particular as well referenced were the fact that in a lot of these circumstances the, the state approach around asylum and protection often doesn't take into account the complicated and nuanced ways that sometimes people end up seeking mm. protection in the state. If you're leaving a circumstance, wherever it may be that you're coming from, sometimes people will use all and every means that are available to them because they're absolutely terrified and in the fear of their life. And I think internationally it's recognised that that's, that's just a part of asylum and protection issues. That doesn't mean mm. that the person's claim is inherently invalid. Uh, and when the Taoiseach gave us the impression that she was a sp- and that her claim wasn't valid, uh, it wasn't taking into account that this was a journalist who was tortured in Georgia by the authorities because she was a journalist, a thorn in her in their side, and tortured to such an extent that she needed nose and eye surgery and had no sight in one eye because she was beaten so badly. And if you were to look at somebody like that as a sponger and send them back to their country, God knows what would happen to them. But, and that and that does that they are the type of situation. So when we're talking about persecution, persecution can come from many different places. It can come from the fact that you're a part of a religious minority. It can come from the fact that you're a woman. It can come from the fact that you're LGBT. And in some cases, it can come from the situation where you're a politi- you're a journalist or somebody in political office or an activist who's critical of the state, and as a result of that, ends up getting targeted. And that happens, unfortunately, in a huge amount of situations and in a huge amount of countries. And you know, people have been. Grand- political protection in Ireland in the past based on those type of circumstances. That is the type of circumstance that, that international protection exists um, to, 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 to um, respond to, you know. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's one of those things where it highlights the fact that somebody can have a very valid claim, be coming from mm. a horrendous situation and go through a bureaucracy then that doesn't often take those things into account. It actually starts from the starting point of viewing somebody with suspicion. It's kind of saying we, we're starting off from the point of inherently not believing you, and now it's your job to push us back over the line into believing you, you know? 
And I don't think that's a human rights-based approach. I don't think that's how human rights work. We shouldn't mm. have to be in a situation where people in human rights violations have to be Yeah, no, absolutely not. Uh, uh, the terrible reality of it as well, Brian, is, of course, that it highlights what was undoubtedly uh, an awful error, uh, an awful uh, judgment uh, that was uh, taken uh, by the Taoiseach. Uh, but uh, we have to leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Brian Killoran, Chief Executive Officer with the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Some response to the interview at the top of the show with Deputy Pad Turbine in relation to uh, the salaries paid to special advisors and Matthew from Navin phoned in and Matthew says that he agrees with comments made by the deputy. He feels that it's an absolute obscene amount of money. Why have caps? He cannot understand this Mm. if the government is not going to abide by them. This is the government's own cap, he understands. That's right, yeah, because the cap isn't high enough to get the person involved that we're talking about. Uh, he was earning 107000 with uh, Fulcher Ireland and uh, if they wanted him uh, to work for Regina Doherty, he needed to earn at least 107000 so they gave it to him. But he says then they shouldn't bother putting in a cap if they're not going to actually abide by it. Mm, but sure, who'd get out of bed for 101000 <laughs> Oh, who, Michael, mm, who? Mm. But what Matthew says is that this is me and you that is paying that wage, yeah, Michael. Mm, yeah. Um, Mairead, why is there a need for so many advisors listening into your show, Michael, and it seems way over the top? Mm. Uh, John from now. It's Nav- a lot, isn't it? Uh, well, just listening mm. to, the, to, to the number that uh, yeah. the deputy was mentioning there, there does seem to be a lot. Mm. John from Nav, and just to make a small comment on the conversation, it's quite amazing that there was no difficulty uh, for Minister Doherty getting an increase for her spin doctor, but couldn't manage to get an increase for the pensioners. Just wondering, will Mr Connolly's brief include explaining away why the Minister was unable to secure pension increase for OAPs? And this is coming from an OAP, Mm. says John. Well, explaining away is another way of saying communicating, uh, and I suppose uh, that is his role. The word earn is loosely used for these advisors. When we see the state of housing and health, says Jim from Navin, mm. he feels that the Taoiseach and the TDs are getting too much money and now we have the advisors in there. Yeah. He feels that Irish people are being made a fool of and have been made fools of for years and they shouldn't be putting up with this. He refers also to RTE and says that many of the stars there are also overpaid mm. and he says the cosy cartel has to be addressed when it comes to election time. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we are talking about a, a spin doctor or uh, a media advisor, uh, whichever uh, term you prefer to use. Uh, uh, but there wouldn't be a mention of uh, the salary if it was over 100,000. If it was 101,114 euro or less, there wouldn't be a mention of it uh, because that is the cap that is set for that job. Mm. Uh, and the reason that it's been mentioned is because that cap has been breached uh, and the spin doctor is getting paid more than the government's official cap, some 6,000 more, and uh, the salary is 107,109 euro. A text from a listener to w- wondering, does Pallotobi have an advisor 
Could you not have asked him that question? Well, he, he would have a constituency officer, I believe. Uh, uh, TDs uh, get uh, allowances of uh, all sorts. And uh, offhand, I can't remember, but uh, I'm not sure what the point is. Uh, what we're talking about here is a breach of a cap. That's right, it uh, is. As I said, uh, is. actually, as I said a second ago, there wouldn't have been a mention of it if it had been within the rules as set by government. And they have a, a maximum salary set at over 100,000, uh, but this is uh, over 107,000. John from West Dublin says that also mentioning, uh, you know, did this communication advisor advise the minister in relation to the budget and pensioners says, I'm a former member of the Defence Forces and look at what they Mm. uh, are being paid and what they got in the budget. I feel it's an absolute disgrace. And he says, I listen in every morning to your show from West Dublin, Mm. Michael. Very good. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. I I don't think uh, Alex Connolly would advise the minister on the budget. No. Uh, The budget would be uh, agreed between the government and the minister would be a member of uh, the government uh, and uh, then would come back uh, with what has been decided. And then it would be up to... Mr. Connolly as her spin doctor That's to right. advise her on how to communicate that message. That's right. He's not a policy advisor. No. He's the, he's the yeah, communications exactly. advisor. Yeah, 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 yeah. So as you say, he would uh, advise her on how to communicate yes. to get the message mm. across yeah. to the various outlets, exactly, media outlets. Exactly, yeah. Don't go on the radio and say Leo Radker should resign. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I know you're going to be mm. hopefully talking mm. to the Minister about it on Monday, so we'll park that one there okay. for the moment, Mike, right, okay, that particular yeah, topic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, on gift vouchers, uh, Annie thinks that uh, the longer that, uh, you know, that you have on vouchers, the mm. longer the expiry date's on them, it's, it has to be welcomed. She says, and I'm sure there's others like her, she's lost count of the amount of vouchers that she's put in a safe place, Michael, mm. and then comes across them yeah. and they've timed out on her. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing mm. more frustrating, she says, because it's such a waste and the money has been paid over and you always feel so guilty about it mm. and bad about it. Especially, says Annie, if you got them as a gift from somebody, which people often do give give gift vouchers. Deirdre from Kells feels that uh, vouchers should be valid for 10 years and if they're not used after that, tough look. But she definitely thinks that there needs to be a change to the legend. All right. Uh, well, there should be a change to the legislation before the Christmas period, uh, and I'm sure that will be welcomed uh, by most, uh, particularly those who leave them in safe places, places that are, are so safe you can't remember where you left them or that when you find them, you forgot that you left them there We've in the first place. It. Yeah. We've all done it. All right. Uh, let's talk about something else, if we can, for a moment, uh, because we heard from Lucia O'Farrell earlier in the week once again about uh, the death of her son, Shane O'Farrell, in a hit-and-run incident in carrick McCraw and how that will be the subject of a state inquiry. But Lucia was very unhappy because she believes uh, the terms of reference for the inquiry or the parameters under which the inquiry will be held have been narrowed so much that it's not what the Dáil and Shannon voted for. Uh, as expected, it was raised in the Dáil yesterday by John McGuinness. And narrowed the uh, original terms of reference, which the department had proposed in February 2019. It has removed reference to Shane and the family's right under the human rights to ensure an effective investigation into the unlawful killing. To date, the state has failed in its obligations in that regard. They further say that they have removed consideration of the prosecution of Shane's case, the first thing for consideration by the Department in terms of the terms of reference in February. They removed any consideration of the coroner's inquest into Shane's death, in which serious irregularities emerged. 
They removed any, any investigation into the previous prosecutions of the accused, despite him being in breach of multiple counts of, of bail when he killed Shane. And they limited the judge to take into account the outcome of reports prepared, being reports which the families view, families view are uh, deficient in many, many ways. And rather than a review of the investigation behind these reports originally envisaged in the, in the terms of reference. So the family obviously engaged with you, they engaged with, with Judge Harden, and they are deeply dissatisfied with the manner in which this is progressing. And I appeal to you, based on the vote taken in this House, to please re-engage with the Lucy O'Farrell and her family, please re-engage with Judge Harden, and please respect the type of inquiry that was asked for, a, pu a public uh, uh, independent inquiry. There are too, there's too much at stake here. And I just finish uh, that uh, by saying that we will learn an awful lot from this case if we allow the judge full scope to deal with every single aspect that has been outlined by Lucia O'Farrell. It will benefit the state. Thank you, I agree. I agree with Deputy McGuinness uh, that all those concerned, in particular the family in question, uh, would engage fully with Judge Houghton. Indeed, I am very much aware, having, having met the family on a number of occasions myself uh, and having engaged with Deputy McGuinness in the past and having seen his advocacy and interest, I am very much aware that at the heart of this matter is the loss of a loved one by the O'Farrell family. And I know that they continue to feel acute pain arising from this dreadful loss. And I know that they continue to seek answers. But as I've said, the terms of reference of the scoping exercise are finalised and Judge Houghton is expected to make his initial report to me within the next couple of weeks. And he's free to make any recommendation he deems fit, including the setting up of any form of inquiry or investigation. Indeed, in the event that Judge Houghton does recommend an inquiry of whatever type, I've asked him in order to ensure no further delay that he might include draft terms of reference for such an inquiry in his report. The Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, responding to Fianna Fáil TD, John McGuinness in the Dáil, who raised the issue about the terms of reference for an inquiry into the circumstances around the death of Shane O'Farrell in that hit-and-run incident in Carrickmacross. Let's go back to some more of the calls and comments that have been coming to us this morning. What else have you got there, Marie? John from Navin phoned in. He was listening in yesterday to discuss to their discussion about the boiled water notices, Michael, in parts of Meath and North Dublin. He says he's not affected, but his sister is. And he wonders now, in hindsight, was it a great mistake of the politicians that when so many people had paid their water charges that they pulled the plug for political reasons and did away with them? He says mm. that if we were paying now, mm. that maybe we would have put a system in place that is fit for purpose. Maybe so. Uh, maybe it would have been impossible to do it in such a short time frame. I was thinking about that yesterday myself and I was thinking the politicians are probably relieved beyond belief that people aren't paying for their water because they'd be saying 
Now, what are we paying it for? I, well, that's yeah. the other side of it too. And speaking of water and that <laughs> rainwater, mm. David phoned in to say that he's ne- he never saw the flooding as bad as it was yesterday, yeah. Michael, on the roads around Mid Loud. He's yeah. specifically referring to. He said some were practically impassable. It was unbelievable the build-up of water. Wondering how this is happening. What needs to be done to stop it happening? Because he says, as everyone know, we get a lot of rain in this country, and we're just coming into the winter season now. Mm. So he wanted to highlight that. Yeah, well, it really has uh, been heavy rain the last couple of days. There's no doubt about it. It has. I was mm-hmm. on a couple of roads yeah, myself yeah, yesterday mm-hmm. evening, uh, the Terminal Feckin Road mm-hmm. there, and my God, there was yeah. such a build-up of water. Yeah, it was yeah. I couldn't. I'd never seen that before myself mm-hmm. either. Yeah, one lane of traffic, I think. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and it was even mm-hmm. tough to get through mm-hmm. that. Through that, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Anyway, David, and to everybody else who's been in touch. All right. Thank you, Marie. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from your telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Dublin rape crisis has uh, been marking 40 years of service since it was first established in 1979. Its uh, chief executive officer is Nolene Blackwell, who's on the line with us. Good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, 40 years. It's a long time uh, by anybody's standards, but I think over the last 40 years, an awful lot has changed in this country. Yeah, an awful lot has changed and what we noticed yesterday, we ran a one-day conference where with some of the people who set up the centre back in 1979 there um, and we had then a whole lot of young people there as well who were, you know, very much looking to the future uh, so you could see the changes. So, for instance, at the time that the centre was set up, it, there was no way, it, 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 it was perfectly acceptable for a husband to rape his wife. Mm. There wasn't even a law in place. Uh, and unacceptable to have a same-sex relationship and yeah. uh, and illegal to buy condoms. Yeah, all all of that and what uh, and what Evelyn Conlon and uh, and O'Donnell who were there were saying was that when when the word rape was mentioned, it was just something to make a joke about, to be mm. funny about. Oh well, so, people didn't have sex in 1979, or at least they didn't talk about having sex. Yeah. Or if they did talk about sex, uh, perhaps it was to have a, a joke or to talk about consensual sex. Uh, but it certainly wasn't to talk about rape or assault. And, and uh, Barbara Egan, another one of the founders, who's still doing some work with the centre, said uh, at the time was, it was 1984 before they first heard about uh, childhood sexual abuse. It was the first time anyone came to them with something about that. Now, almost half of our the people who are contacting us, uh, or the people who are coming into our centre, are dealing with um, abuse that they suffered as children. So these things were happening. They weren't talked about. And what was extraordinary as well was how hard it was to talk about it. When the rape crisis centre was set up, they put out, they had one of the first telephone answering machines in Ireland, something that nobody would know how to use anymore. Mm. And they're so out of date. But at the time, it was a very novel invention. Um, and they put out the words, but they didn't put out their own names because it wasn't safe or good for them to be associated with having anything to do with helping women who had suffered rape because they were focused on women at the start. Um, and they realised there was no support whatsoever. People had nowhere to go. Now, in a sense, we nearly consider, what did they do? Well, they suffered in silence.
Conference. Um, and so we had that back in 1979. And then we had Hannah McGee at the conference as well. Actually, the, she's the Dean of, Med, uh, Dean of Medicine at um, the Royal College of Surgeons. Mm. And they gave us their hall for today, gave us the use of the hall, as they say. Um, and she, spoke, she was involved in that survey that was done on sexual abuse and violence in Ireland back in 2002, the Savvy Report. Mm. And she had run that. Um, and talking about how 600 of the 3,000 people that they contacted revealed sexual abuse for the first time. Now, that's still an issue. Yeah. But, but to have nowhere to go, to have no phone line to contact, to have no one to talk to about it, and, you know, to have it, to have it going to the guards simply wasn't an option. Well, most people. Well, uh, I mean, there was a different definition in 1979 of what sexual assault was. I mean, many women will testify uh, that uh, they'd be standing innocently somewhere and someone would slap their bottom. Yeah. Uh, That that was commonplace. Uh, And, uh, I mean, it was behaviour that was learned from Benny Hill. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And do you know what? That still happens, but it's just not acceptable anymore. But in some ways, too, Michael, we were looking at how little progress has been made since 1979. That in this day and age, that somebody will still, you know, feel it is their entitlement to feel up somebody else. Mm. Uh, in a sexual way without their consent. So there's an awful long way to go and one of our staff who was involved in one of the sessions came out crying out of one of the sessions saying we have so much more still to do. We have to work harder. And one of the things that we definitely focused on yesterday was how important it is to listen to the experts by experience. Those who've actually suffered sexual assault and who are telling us that systems still aren't right. That there's still aren't sufficient supports in place and that we still have an awfully long way to go to have it recognised and here's the thing we have to recognise that sexual assault and rape is happening and it's happening far too often and to far too many people right across our society and that we're not talking about it as an awful harm and a wrong back in February of this year I think the Taoiseach called violence against women an epidemic and as I always say he's a doctor he should know what an epidemic is. But it is just something that if we had an epidemic in any other area, if we had Ebola, if we had a measles epidemic, we would be putting resources into ending the epidemic. Maybe not ending it ever happening, but ending the epidemic. So so while it was good to market, we weren't mm. celebrating yesterday. No, I'm sure. Because not, no, no, there was no, a lot no. of there was and there was a lot of time over that forty years where discussion was shut down, mm. where, you know, you couldn't talk about these things openly. And we're lucky now that there seems to be a, we now seem to be in a time where people are saying we can't shut down the conversation because we haven't solved the problem. Well, you and were, that is very valuable. You were marking a, a time in our history when the only talk of abuse, if you like, was dirty old men in Macintosh coats. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and people uh, kind of felt, well, look, you know, you mightn't like it, but that's just life and you need to get on with it. And there was exactly. that attitude. That was probably exemplified uh, in terms of the number of people who made contact with uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre when you opened your doors 40 years ago. Yeah. Just 76 people compared to 13,000 now. Uh, and you have 16 rape crisis centres across the country. 
yeah, and and that that is definitely the difference. We have the consolation now of knowing there is some support there, and that the people in the rape crisis centres and others who don't call themselves rape crisis centres, like one in four who work with victims of sexual violence as well. Um, so all of those are there now. We all are, most of us anyway, are really stuck by having um, people waiting too long to access our services. But it is much better than the situation that was there. People now know that rape and sexual abuse happens and that it is and that when they're harmed by it a lot of people now know that they can come and get help but we still feel that we're only hitting the tip of the iceberg. The the water might have gone down a little bit and you might see a bit more of the iceberg but we feel there are an awful lot of people out there who, who don't even who don't know how to name what has happened to them. Um, again, the founders were talking about the people who would phone and stay on the phone silently without being able to say what was going wrong. They were a bit surprised that that is still happening in this day and age, 40 years later. But that is the truth that people can't accept, particularly given that rape and sexual assault mm. happens from someone you know, for the most part. Three out of every four sexual assaults are by somebody known to the victim. And in those cases, then, we, you're, you're looking at saying, I now have to call out something by someone I trusted, someone I liked, maybe someone I married or I, I'm living with. You know, all of these things, are, they're not going to be easy because for the most part, and again, I thought this was an interesting comment by Evelyn Conlon, who was one of the founders, she, and she's a writer, and, mm. and so she can put things differently to me. <laughs> but yeah. she, she, she said, you know, she said, for the most part, sex is one of the most joyful areas of intimate life. Mm. It's just one of the things that it's, that it's good and it's honest and it's real. But the trouble with rape and sexual abuse is that it is a perversion of something that's good and real, which is very different to, say, burglary mm. or murder even. So it's still an area where we just have to, we have to keep building. We, and, and the key will mm. be where people see each other as equal partners in sexual activity. And then we will have yeah. consensual sexual activity and then we won't have abuse. And as you always say, that cannot be the case with children now because a child cannot consent. Yeah. And we've now accepted that child sexual abuse exists and is a very significant problem. Very different situation than would have been the case in 1979. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that we have to thank as a society for that. People like Mary Rafferty or Christine Buckley, Colin yeah. O'Gorman or Andrew. Andrew Madden, or indeed uh, some of the other people who have taken us on this journey in terms of understanding what rape and assault were. Uh, the first victim uh, to waive her anonymity was with you yesterday, Lavinia Kerwick. Tell us about Lavinia. Yeah, yeah so, so Lavinia actually opened our conference yesterday um, and she has a, a history with the Rape Crisis Centre stretching back 25 years, as she said yesterday, so she won't mind me saying it. Um, and she was raped by her boyfriend back in 1990, New Year's Eve 1990. And she, and there was a trial, and he was convicted, and he got uh, fully suspended, or he he didn't even get a sentence. Mm -hmm. Uh, The judge said, you go out of the courtroom now, if you come back in a year and you haven't been in trouble since, I, I won't impose, um, I won't impose a sentence on you, a custodial sentence on you. 
And Lavinia had gone through the trial where she had been put through the ringer in a very serious way, in the most intimate way, where she was asked all sorts of questions about her sexual activity, about the fact, had she provoked him and all the rest. She came out and he walked free with with the judge saying he was a decent man and a good man, and that there would be no there would be no penalty if, if in the years time if that was understood, and she couldn't believe it, and she couldn't actually put up with it either. Now she was nineteen, mm. and you ha- like, and she had been through all of this ringer, and she was exhausted and she was sick, but she felt that this could not be right, and she made a really famous call then to Jerry Ryan and the Jerry Ryan show on RTE, mm. and she said. Uh, and and she, what what Lavinia often says about that is, he asked me my name. He was the first person in the cor- in the whole course of the thing to ask her her name, and she said her name was Lavinia. Now at the time, all victims as well as all perpetrate all all accused people were all. Um, Anonymous. Anonymous, And she gave her name on the air. She said, my name is Lavinia. And as a result of her saying that and a campaign she took on when she was really ill and unwell, she actually got the law changed so that you could allow victim impact statements because she was the only person in court who didn't get to tell her story as she wanted to tell it. Everyone else, the prosecution, the defence, got a chance to tell their story. There was no victim impact statements. And that has made a huge difference to tens of thousands of victims of all sorts of crimes Mm. since then. And the other thing, the law was changed on her campaign in order to allow the Director for Public Prosecution's appeal if a sentence was too lenient. Making it a a safer world for all of us and certainly a more just world. We have to leave it there, Nolene, and thank you as always for joining us here on the programme. Nolene Blackwell, Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And remember, if you would like to speak to somebody, if you've been a victim or if you're concerned about somebody who has had inappropriate sexual contact, you can always contact the 24-hour helpline of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and that is 1-800-77-8888. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Sick of Plastic campaign is uh, to hold uh, a protest uh, stroke demonstration in uh, Tesco's of uh, Drada tomorrow. It's in conjunction with Friends of the Earth and Voice Ireland and uh, Breach Nee Canela of the Sick of Plastic campaign is with us here and a very good morning to you Bridge and uh, thanks for coming into us uh, and it's with the cooperation it has to be said of Tesco's and hopefully with the cooperation of local people listening to us today yeah um, well we, it's a very friendly campaign really it's kind of more um, an, a, a kind of an advocacy campaign where we're telling people um, about plastic and just trying to make people more aware so it's in the interest of the supermarkets to kind of know what their customers want mm. So it's kind of like market research for them in, in a sense. Like, mm. um, <clears throat> but um, we'll we'll be asking people um, to um, to leave their plastic behind in the supermarket. Now, afterwards, then the supermarket can have a look at that and see what where are the the ones that the the plastic that people don't need mm. and really at all. Like, um, I think a lot of the supermarkets do this already. Like um, Aldi in Drogheda does it, where they people are, are there's boxes out there and people can leave their plastic behind, mm. and then the supermarket goes through it and sees. Well, look, 
people don't actually need that. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, what do you need broccoli and plastic for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd imagine it makes it sweat apart from anything else, but uh, apart from the plastic, uh, and well, you're sick of plastic. Yeah, it um it prolongs the shelf life, but you don't want to be eating a two week old, you know, half dead mm. plastic, you know, plastic infused broccoli you know mm. what I mean I mean that's the big argument with well they um, say it prolongs the shelf life but does it I mean does it taste better I, I um, think I think, I think it keeps like bacteria off it and stuff mm. like that um, so there is a argument between food waste and plastic waste um, but like really I suppose well, what um, do I need apples and plastic for? Well ex- exactly yeah mm. I mean a lot of things and netting like you get your mm. uh, your um, um uh, apples and all sorts of things in netting. Uh, uh, garlic can be in netting, mm. you know, and you don't really need that. Like you can buy them loose. Now, the thing about supermarkets is they tend to make the stuff that's in netting and plastic bags cheaper um, than the other stuff, you know, mm. the loose stuff. So it... it um, it's easier for them to manage. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm. But it also... Uh, doesn't encourage people to buy the loose stuff, you know. Mm. So what we're asking people to do um, tomorrow will be to leave their plastic in the supermarket, also to sign a campaign and then we'll give their signatures to Tesco and say, look, all these people don't want plastic Mm. and they would like to reduce plastic. Because like in 2015, there was um, a study done and Ireland was one of the top producers of plastic in in the EU with 61 kilograms per inhabitant. And most of this plastic like then ends up um, because most of, most of the packaging, most people don't know this, but most of the packaging is not recyclable. Mm. So it ends up being incinerated, it ends up in landfill, or it ends up as litter. And then that, most of that ends up in the sea. So um, you might have heard of the big um, uh, Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which I think um, David Attenborough had on his programme. Like, and right. it's, it's 1.6 million square kilometres mm. of plastic in the sea and all that kind of sometimes some of it can break down Mm. and then it goes into these little microplastics they're really small and then they're eaten by fish and they're eaten by uh, scallops ends up in the food chain then you eat the fish then we eat the fish and plastic is Mm. not good to be in your in human beings like Mm. I mean um, a lot of it like there there hasn't been a lot of studies done but apparently about three quarters of plastic is um, toxic to be in in your body like and it, it's an endocrine um disruptor mm. so it um can affect your hormones it can bring on um cancers yeah. different types of cancers diabetes all sorts reduce of your lifespan yeah basically, i mean yeah. which uh, i i don't think anybody is uh, too eager to do no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's many ways of doing it and i'm sure we could find a better way if we were eager to do it yeah. than that uh, yeah. but uh, uh, even when it comes to <laughs> more re- enjoyable <laughs> more enjoyable indeed yeah <laughs> uh, when it comes to recycling um uh, we're not very good at that either uh, new figures yesterday show that we're fifth from the bottom on the european table in terms of, of recycling uh, <laughs> but when we buy this stuff as you say a lot of the plastic that is used to wrap the produce mm. uh, is not recyclable anyway. Yeah. Uh, but if uh, people are going to Tesco's tomorrow and they wish to support uh, this uh, effort, uh, I would imagine they need to come uh, prepared. Uh, they'd need to bring bags with them uh, or something like that. Well, I mean, usually what I do, my own experience is like I, I've been doing this for a while. So mm. I um, when I go into Tesco I just do my normal shop I have a plastic bag I take the stuff out like let's say because I buy a lot of organic stuff and that has to come in plastic so um, you, you just take like the celery out take the plastic off put it in the bin 
put it back mm. into the bag, you know. Um, so it's it's fairly simple. Like, um, Would the supermarket not ordinarily object to you doing that? They don't seem to, no. No, okay. No, mm-hmm. they don't seem to. Um, I don't know why, but they don't. Um, yeah, mm. so, so what we're going to be asking the supermarket is... Um, to offer more pa- uh, more items without packaging, so, such as the loose stuff, and to not make the loose stuff dearer, mm. um, so that uh, people are encouraged to buy that. So, um, and then to make their own brand stuff easily reusable, compostable, and recyclable, mm. and to basically use less plastic. Okay, and then uh, um, also also to encourage the people that they are buying from to do the same thing. And then, oh yeah, there's a plastic-free aisle that we would like people to have, supermarkets to have as well. Mm. Like in the Netherlands, they do that. They have this plastic-free aisle and you just go down the aisle and there's no plastic at all on the aisle. Mm. And then, oh yeah, in a lot of shops now, you'll find it in um, health food stores. Um, like there's one in Drumcondra there, it's called Small Changes. And they'll have um, bulk items. Mm-hmm. So you'll have like let's say dry things like porridge, oats or rice or something and you bring your own container mm. you fill up yep. and you, you weigh your container first mm. you fill up yep. then you weigh it again you know? Yeah and I saw that get a, a lot of publicity in the papers uh, as well uh, yeah. as a result because it is unique and uh, people like it uh, when you yeah. say we who are you talking about uh, I take it uh, there's a, a number of you who are involved in this Yeah there's mm. a few people mm. now in Drogheda um, some people from the Extinction Rebellion um, are supporting us and um also, um, just people, the general shop, people who shop mm. in Tesco or people who are just sick of plastic. Okay. So um, it's, a, it's a group of us. I just, mm-hmm. I had a public, I set up a public um, meeting and a lot of people came along and from there we formed a group. Okay, very good. Uh, we can put people in touch with you or they can meet you, I'm sure, in Tesco's yeah. tomorrow. Where will you be in Tesco's at the end of the chills, is it? or um, We're not 100% sure yet. Okay. We'll either be mm. outside the door, we'll be getting the petition signed mm. and then we'll have bins somewhere and people okay. can put their bins in. Mm-hmm. They've said they'll accommodate us inside, so um, hopefully mm-hmm. that'll happen. Okay, so that's uh, the big Tesco's, as people yeah. would call it in Drogheda. Yeah, yeah. Okay. the one right. near the TLT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, thank you indeed uh, for coming in to us uh, this morning. Uh, people will meet you in uh, Tesco's in uh, Drogheda and our thanks, as I say, to Breach Nikinela uh, of uh, the Sick of Plastic campaign in Drogheda. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, women who underwent a medical procedure involving pelvic mesh implants to deal with incontinence say they've suffered injuries so horrendous that it compares with uh, the thalidomide scandal. And Mesh Survivors Ireland now has 522 members. Uh, the group is to meet with the minister tomorrow, and we'll hear from one of the members now. Audrey, a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Explain to us a, a little bit more about these pelvic mesh implants, if you would, please. Yeah, hey, good morning. Thanks for um, having us on. Um, it's for women. Um, it's not only for elderly women. It's for young women as well. Um, I was only 32 when I was implanted with this. Um, I was after having uh, my fourth child. And uh, they put it in because um, for, you know, like when you have a child, like you, when you cough and all that, you can have little accidents and mm. stuff and had a little prolapse. So um, I was given this. Um, I didn't get any physio. I was given this procedure. I was told it was a miracle. Um, and it was put into me at 32 years of age. And I've had nothing but tr- trouble um, since I've had it. Uh, implanted in me. Okay, and you've had a, a lot of trouble, haven't you? Yeah, I've had a lot of trouble. Um, straight away after the operation, when I woke up, I was in agony. I knew something was wrong. And the next day, I ended up having to get a blood transfusion. 
Um, I was in hospital for four or five days. I went home. I was back in hospital within four days. Mm. Spent another five days in hospital. Um, I it came right through my vagina wall. The uh, mesh did. Um, I had to get an operation six months later to fix it. I was told that it's um, quite common that it turns around and Mm. it can stick out. And what they do is trim it. Um, I went anyway, got that operation. After that operation, he told me the consultant told me that um, that my body was after rejecting it. That he never seen that before. But if it happened again, he wouldn't Mm. be able to do anything for me. Why? He would have to take it out because sometimes people just reject stuff. Um, I was never told at any point um, this could not be removed. I was, I as far as I was knew, it was something that they could put in and mm. take it back out, which I found out the hard way that's untrue. Um, mm. After that, just, I went, just 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 say that again uh, because uh, the consultant told you you'd have to take it out, but then yeah. you realised that you couldn't have it taken out. Is later it later on, a couple of years later? Right, okay. um, it actually can't be removed. Okay, and back up a, a, another little bit. Why yeah. did you have to have a, a blood transfusion? Because I am. Um, I lost so much blood under this operation that was only takes a couple of minutes. They couldn't get me blood pressure back up the next day. Um, so and was that unusual? Well, I don't know. Mm. I don't know if that's an. I never like. I thought it was a day I'd be in a new. Um, I didn't expect to be getting a blood transfusion. I didn't expect to be waking up in excruciating pain. Um, I thought I'd be in and out, and that would be it. I didn't realise that it would be an ongoing issue mm. from the moment I got it. Um, and you, you, you've had other problems, haven't oh, you? Oh, yeah, uh, like I've had loads of problems mm. from it. You've, you've had infections, and uh, I don't think in your case, but in some cases it can lead to sepsis. Yeah, now well, I haven't had sepsis, thank mm. God. But yeah, no, other people have. Um, I've had urine uh, infections one after the other. At one stage, I had five. I was on five antibiotics over mm. six weeks. I went private to get um, a kidney scan done to see if there's something wrong. At this stage, after um, I fo- when they fixed it, I ne- wasn't connecting the dots that all of this stuff was wrong with me. Mm. I kept getting groin strains. Um, my leg kept going from underneath me. Um, my back was killing me. Um, I was really depressed. I actually went through probably two years really depressed, not knowing what was wrong with me. Kept going back to my GP, getting bloods mm. to see was it thyroid and diabetic, all of that, and everything kept coming back around. I was extremely tired um, all the time. It wasn't actually until um, I seen a program on the telly that a lady was speaking about the mesh. I actually didn't know it was called the mesh until I heard it on the program. It was right. called this. I was told it was a sling that was put inside me. Um, okay, and, and this has affected every part of your life, as you say. You're yeah. a, a mother to four, four children. children uh, and and for, yeah, for the last seven years, I have not been uh, a mother really because I'm constantly sick. Um, and you can't be intimate with your partner. No, no, and I t- and that's three years. I went and I told the consultants this. Uh, I went back a while ago. My friend actually convinced me to go back because I just I felt like I wasn't being listened. Mm. And what did so, the consultant say to you? Uh, I went back. He said that he couldn't feel anything. Um, I told him it's there. I can't have intercourse. Um, and he told me uh, he couldn't feel anything anyway. Um, and he told me that um, sometimes when we hear things, we think it's happening to us, like 
he says to me, well, you didn't have groin pain before. It's all of a sudden that um, people in that have come out about this are saying it, mm. that you just seem to be getting these issues. And I said, no, not at all. I said, I wasn't connecting. That might be in the mesh. I was just thinking there was something else going on. Um, I felt that I wasn't listening to it at all. Um, and I didn't feel really comfortable going back. He told me that um, my partner, I need to have a conversation with my partner, that it's not there, um, that uh, if my partner doesn't want to be with me, there's isn't the conversation I need to have with him. Um, did you uh, say that to your partner? Yeah. And what did he say? He wanted to go in and speak to him. Okay, yeah, I'm sure he wanted to yeah. do a little bit more than that. Okay, yeah. uh, you don't need to go there. Um, uh, but uh, obviously your partner uh, says otherwise, you say otherwise. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, it's not the only issue of a dispute. Uh, there's a, a dispute over where the mesh is actually yeah. in your body now, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, exactly. Um, I did get him to refer me for a scan. Um, I He did send me for a scan. Um, and when the last time I went back to see him, he told me that it was in, it was grand, everything is perfect, it hasn't moved, but he just wanted to put me asleep just to have a look to make sure everything was okay. When I did leave, I contacted a hospital that I got the scan in and got the results um, through the Freedom of Information. And in the results, the first line was they couldn't detect the mesh. Um, so I knew, even though I knew mm. I wasn't being, telling, being told the truth, I knew there is a black and white. Um, so I didn't go back to him after that. So at the moment, I'm in limbo. Um, I I did, there is a, um, a thing set up, uh, Patways. I did contact them. And they told me I'd have to go back to the same consultant. I said I, that I, w- I wouldn't be happy with that. Mm. They told me I'd have to go to Cork. Um, and I asked, well, would my travel expenses be paid for? And they were like, no. Hmm. Um, I still haven't been told who's going to be doing it. Nobody's even contacted okay. me. I have a piece of plastic sticking through me still. And, and what, what can be done for you if it can't be taken out? Uh, can well, there's this nobody in Ireland qualified to right. um, do it. There is hmm. uh, people um, in America and in England that are qualified to do it. But I just personally, and I know a lot of ladies okay. as well, would not have the funding to go about, well, yeah. um, about <laughs> go yeah. across the seas to get it done. Between yeah. everything. And there's 522 yeah. women in yeah. the group. Uh, meeting with uh, the Minister tomorrow, what will you be hoping to hear from the Minister? Uh, we're meeting them on Monday, sorry. Oh, um, but we're hoping that there's going to be an inquiry into this. Why this has been put into women without um, enough evidence Mm. Um, because there seems to be quite a lot of injuries from this, not only from in Ireland, but in America, New Zealand, um, Australia and England. That that is a a lot of um, issues. Um, We want to get a band and we want to see what he's going to do to help the people that have been affected by this. Well, we'll hear what the Minister has to say uh, when he hears uh, from your group on Monday. Audrey, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, That's Audrey from Mesh Supporters Ireland. Brings our programme to its conclusion this week. Hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hold up. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.